If I were to start chewing really loudly into this microphone, would you want to haul off and hit me? I mean, seriously, would it be one of the worst things I could possibly do? Do you know someone who is so triggered by certain sounds that it started to cause conflict in their relationships with others? Today, we're talking about misophonia, an oversensitive reaction to certain sounds that can make listening to things like chewing or crunching excruciating. We're welcoming Adil Ahmad, the host of the Misophonia podcast, to talk about life with the realities of it, the very surprising things we know that might contribute to it, and how to find some hope and compassion. If you've ever wondered why certain sounds bother you even more than the proverbial nails on a chalkboard, you'll want to listen to today's baggage check. Welcome. It's really good to have you here. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Baggage Check is not a show about luggage or travel. Incidentally, it's also not a show about how there are a lot of people using the word bespoke without actually being able to define what it means. I'm not really sure either. Okay, on to the show. Today we're talking about misophonia, a condition that has gotten more attention as of late. Talk show host Kelly Ripa has spoken out about having it. There have been some high-profile pieces about it. It's a hypersensitivity in a negative way to certain sounds, often things like mouth sounds, chewing, crunching, slurping, but it could be any number of sounds. And it's one of those disorders that you might not know there's a name for, even if you're experiencing it. And it may wreak havoc on families and relationships before you even realize what's going on. But not only is there a name for it, there is hope. So I invited Adil Ahmad to the show. He is the host of The Misophonia Podcast. That's the title of the show, capital letters, The Misophonia Podcast, and it's wonderful. It's welcomed all kinds of people from all walks of life who have this challenge. We had a remarkable conversation about his own experience of misophonia, how it impacted his relationships and his parenting and his family, and how he's connected with other misophonia sufferers in a big way. He brought up some fascinating theories about the science behind it, that honestly were pretty startling to hear in terms of what might be going on in the brain. There is so much good stuff here, and I can't wait for you to listen. So let's get it started. I am so happy to have you here today. Welcome to Baggage Check. Oh, no, it's great to be here. Thank you, Andrea. Yeah, so I just heard of misophonia. I guess it's it's been many years now, but... When I heard about it, it was kind of a revelation in the sense that I'd been in the mental health field for a while, and I considered myself relatively knowledgeable of various sort of rare quirks of the brain. And this really was something of a revelation because I think when I first heard about it and I started to hear people's stories, it really made sense in such a way that this is something that affects people's lives really deeply because it must be very hard to get away from if this is. So I'm just, I'm so glad to be able to to talk with you because I think this affects a lot of people and maybe they don't have a name for it and maybe they feel like there's something wrong with them that's deeper than this or they feel like an outcast or they feel like they're mean. Can you talk about your own story and how you came to discover this about yourself? Yeah, I know you hit a lot of points that come up on the podcast a lot. Um, so yeah, I'm sure, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into each of those, but yeah, going back to to my story, and I think my story resonates with is similar to a lot of folks. Uh, it started probably around you know being around middle age, uh, not middle age, middle school age, I should say. Starting uh, at at home with the parents uh, first, uh, usually related to mouth sounds. Yeah, and you definitely feel like um, you know a lot of us kind of get it maybe confused with is this just part of growing up and you know there's a lot of like you know issues when when you're becoming a teenager so uh and there was never a name for it back in the day uh, and a lot of us yeah who grew up a, a while ago we we grew up thinking that we're angry we were told that we were you know probably angry and grumpy and we should just kind of like suck it up so for me actually going through college and school uh I didn't notice it as much. It was really kind of isolated to kind of the home environment. That's one of the tragedies of misophonia is that um, 
the triggers tend to be the folks uh, that you are closest to and mm-hmm. that there's all kinds of repercussions on that. But for me, at least, you know, luckily was able to get through school okay. Then, you know, in the work environment, uh, in open office environments where I tended to work, it kind of reared its ugly head because you just can't, cannot get away from sounds. And so this was kind of in the 2000s and 2000s and then the 2010s. It was around 10, 15 years ago uh, where it really started to, misophonia as a term really started to become still not popular, but uh, it was mentioned more. There was that New York Times article in 2011, and obviously, uh, you know, folks like Kelly Ripa have mentioned it. So that's when uh, I, you know, realized, okay, wow, it has a name. And and I think a lot of people listening who have misophonia will, will uh, relate to this. Like I was Googling nonstop, like did not stop learning about it because it was it just explained so much explained so many of the reactions growing up so many of the uh second order effects the 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 effects on um family relationships or friend relationships um and so i decided to just become part of the uh try to become part of the community and a few years ago there was a convention i mean there's a there's a convention that's that's amazing to even to misophones that there's like an annual convention um yeah and it was here in uh, the Minneapolis area, so I went there. And when just being in a room with a couple hundred misophones, I, everyone was just, we were all strangers, but we all felt like we knew like half each other's lives. Like we already knew each other. And so meeting in outside in the corridors and the hallways, uh, it was a surreal thing where we felt really connected to each other, Which, but we didn't really have to like, you know, say too much. We didn't have to say everything. Uh, and when we did, we realized we have a lot of, a lot of our lives were very, we had a lot of the same situations, the same emotions. And because we'd all suffered in silence, it was just, it was just a surreal revelation. Um, yeah. And so getting back a little bit closer to the present, it was after one of those conventions when I realized, you know, this is not well known. Like all these like people think of us as just, and a lot of misophones just think of ourselves as being grumpy. We don't realize that we have all these uh, similar situations and emotions that we've grown up with. Um, let's get these stories out there and um, started doing the podcast. And it just has not let up. More and more people want to get on and uh, come on the podcast and share their stories. A lot of people have come on and said, this is the first time I've uttered these words out loud beyond reading about it. And they don't come on and just say, I'm annoyed by sounds. They tell me like, you know, really tragic things about uh, relationships with their parents being destroyed. Uh, and so these are like really heavy things. Um, and so it's been an honor to kind of be trusted to, to share these stories. And I know from the messages, the private messages I get from people, uh, it's really having impact. So it's so powerful that notion of being able to connect with people who had similar experiences that maybe at the time they thought were theirs alone and they felt maybe like an outsider they felt something was wrong with them i mean i think that's something that i see all the time for various various challenges that people face whether they be something widespread like depression where people maybe know that it's a thing, but they still feel so alone or something more rare like this, where it's like, I didn't even know there were other people that felt this way. And you refer to some of this second order types of ripple effects. And I think that's so fascinating because this isn't really just about how you maybe process sounds and how you react to that, but it's also about relationships. It's about interactions. I wonder if you could say more sort of first about how we might define misophonia itself but then also, too, I'd love to hear more about the nitty gritty of how it affected your friendships, how it felt to be a teenager who felt like maybe they were just more grumpy than everyone else. That's a good point. I didn't I didn't define it. Uh, you probably did in the intro, but uh, I actually don't even define it on the on the podcast because it's uh, <laughs> it's very much it's, I guess, targeted for people who have misophonia and to talk about to do real talk. Um, mm-hmm. And we just kind of get into it. But yeah, I mean, misophonia is and I don't know if this is honestly an official definition, but I just describe it as a disorder that's an irrational a reaction to certain, usually certain sounds, not just every sound, not just loud sounds, that's hyperacusis, but it's usually very specific sounds. They're usually sounds that are mouth-related, but there have been a number of other types of sounds, like uh, somebody said that the sounds of um, skin movement because, uh, you know, growing up her dad would clap his hands together and rub them, rub them really hard together in the morning to warm up. And, and so just... 
sometimes it's not necessarily a mouth sounds, but or crinkling or gum chewing. Uh, these are these are very typical kind of sounds、mm-hmm. that trigger people. Now the reactions tend to be, you know, a lot of people might be annoyed by certain sounds.、Uh, But it's very much a fight or flight、uh, or feign reaction, where we're hyper focused on the sound. We wish we would not be hyper focused、uh, to the sound. This gets to another、uh, another thing we're always told that、uh, once you just tune it out, once you snap out of it, it's not possible to do that in most situations. And so there's this fight or flight situation where we need to get away, or we feel like honestly we have sometimes quite. Sickening, violent thoughts of what we want to do to get rid of that sound. No one ever acts out on it, but it's it's that intense,、um, and we can't we can't do it. We can't focus on anything else. So that's what we're talking about here. And so when someone, maybe someone, is causing that sound, it tends to build up all of this. I don't want to say baggage, or it just、uh, it assigns all these attributes to the person making the sound, which we don't want to have to. A sign like this person is doing it on purpose. This person is trying to hurt me.、Uh, you, we very, we feel very much unsafe,、mm-hmm. and and it's it's like a, a kind of a, a lizard、uh, react, like our, our early、um, lizard brain reaction. And we can talk about kind of some of my thoughts on where this all comes from. But but yeah, that's that's kind of, it's a very raw reaction. It's not like we've thought about it and we're like, oh. Yes, I find that sound very annoying, and I must run away. It's it's immediate and、uh, it's very intense. So, yeah, yeah, that's a little bit about kind of that that initial reaction.、Um, yeah, and it feels very much. It sounds like that real nervous system reaction of threat,、mm-hmm. right? That sympathetic nervous system says, "Hey, we're fighting. We're fly- fleeing. Maybe we're paralyzed with fear." I mean, just in the same way that somebody with a snake phobia. Might go into absolute、right. panic mode, even though people have told them a hundred times, "Hey, that snake is in a case, and this is a reptile exhibit, and he's not coming out of the thing." They feel like they're under threat, and it sounds very similar in that way. Like you don't want to be upset by that sound, but something almost prehistoric is activated in your nervous system that says, "Oh, this is a threat. This is bothersome." And it sounds like sometimes it's even easy to to feel rage for a person that you don't want to feel rage、exactly. toward. That must be so. That must be so disheartening to not want to feel that way. I don't want to be mad at this person. I know they're not doing it on purpose, and yet here is every fiber of my being saying this is the worst thing that they could possibly be doing right now. It's very much yeah. It's very much.、Uh, it's it's funny. I describe it as kind of it's like Jekyll and Hyde. Like we'll switch from like. Totally chill to total rage, but it's not just Jekyll and and Hyde separately. It's it's almost Jekyll and Hyde at the same time in your head because your rational mind is realizes that this is not an unsafe environment. You're okay. You shouldn't be mad at this, but this I think Hyde is the bad guy. But I mean, it, like it's 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 very much、um, that side has taken over. And、yeah. so it's it's an internal struggle, and it's exhausting. Like we are exhausted after、mm-hmm. this.、Uh, And on top of that, once we get out of the exhaustion, we're left with this,、um, you know, this weird resentment and anger, which we realize should not be there.、Um, but it's very much, and we can get into kind of like、uh, ideas on where it might come from. But it seem it feels like, you know, as as I've learned more about it,、uh, it feels like some of this comes from maybe situations. Growing up, and I've talked to a lot of folks, obviously on the podcast. Most people have had some kind of walking on eggshells kind of childhood situation, where either there was a lot of chaos, or there was、um, kind of a low-level chronic trauma, maybe an angry parent, an alcoholic, or something like that. This is a very, very common trait、uh, or a background that a lot of us share. I feel like I'm no doctor or researcher, but I feel like there was,、uh, you know, that child brain assigned, you know, learned that sa- certain sounds were a warning that something might happen, and that did not le- that did not、um, leave as you grew up, and so suddenly now, sounds that your child brain assigned to imminent danger, right?、Uh, that doesn't need to be there, but it's still there, right? That's fascinating. Sort of like that. Hypersensitivity to threat、mm-hmm. that we see in some people prone to anxiety, high levels of anxiety. It's like that false alarm because I've been primed to think that something's going to be happening that's terrible if this trigger happens. It's also interesting too. 
the, the idea that maybe something's going on environmentally in a lot of these kids' homes, one thing that comes to mind as somebody who consumes a lot of research and thinking, part of me is like, I wonder if some of these parents had undiagnosed misophonia, which made them more prone to be angry, to struggle with alcoholism, to create sort of an explosive, unstable environment. Do you think there's anything to that possibility? It'd be fascinating to do some long longitudinal studies on this. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there, that should definitely be a point of research because uh, a lot of people who come on and um, obviously are not looking at the research, they're not doctors. A lot of people come on and say, I'm, I'm convinced this is genetic because I've had either uh, you know, a parent who's had it, maybe and also a grandparent uh, or some other family member. But I think you're right. It's more likely that probably that there was some other, uh, either misophonia or some uh, un, other undiagnosed uh, or diagnosed issues that perpetuated mental health issues. And in maybe in, in, in one generation, it ended up being misophonia where the brain decided that uh, warning your, your body, your nervous system of a sound is something that's worth doing. Yeah. And it just became, uh, you know, it just became stuck. But yeah, it, it seems like, well, yeah, I would not be surprised that uh, that, that, that that is the case because I have definitely talked to quite a few people who said that thinking back and sometimes they realize that on the podcast, it's like it's not something that um, it, it's they're thinking about as we're talking about it uh, together because no one has ever talked to them about it. Um, wow. And so so it seems like, you know, people come, will come on and say, yeah, you know, I think my dad or mom was alcoholic, but it was also misophonic because they would go crazy when we would be in the car, you know, doing this or that. And so, um, right. yeah, there's more to this than a single person in a family being um, annoyed by a sound. For sure. And I think so many mental health challenges are like that. There's something even below it. It's like, okay, this person is struggling with substance abuse, but really it's about trauma. Or, you know, this person seems like they're really anxious, but deep down it's about depression. It, you know, there's so many times and and that's the privilege and the responsibility of the mental health professional. Often we're in that situation where we have to look below the surface sometimes in terms of what happens. Yeah. And that's kind yeah. of one of the one of the revelations I've only, you know, doing this for three years, one of the revelations I've only learned about, I've realized, I think recently is that uh, looking at misophonia, not so much as like a, a defect, more of it's a, um, it maybe now or it was at one point a warning to something it was warning you or trying to protect you from something mm -hmm. which i think is uh i don't know it's for me it just seemed not just fascinating but it's kind of a beautiful thought that um it's it, it was actually a, a you know a feature not a bug kind of thing yes I obviously love something went on something you know maybe it's, it's not needed anymore it's obviously yeah. and that's maybe more tragic that's something that was meant to help you is hurting so many other parts of your life you know that that reminds me just a lot of panic symptomology in that that natural fight or flight response evolutionarily it kept us alive right it allowed us to run faster it allowed us to focus all of our energy on fighting that predator and then over time in modern life it's like i don't want to have these same symptoms when i'm about to give a speech i'm sitting in a fluorescently lit office and I'm just trying to give a speech and yet my body thinks I'm about to fight a cave bear or something like that. Yeah, It is a feature, not a bug. It was developed in us for a reason, but now it doesn't serve our purposes anymore. It's so interesting, that connection that maybe in a way misophonia is similar. Maybe thousands of years ago, hey, if I hear these certain type of sounds, it means that an animal is munching on something nearby and I need to be aware and hyper-triggered by that. But now it's just my sister eating popcorn at a movie. Right. Yeah, and the irony, there's something that, as you were saying that, ironically, you know, a lot of people think, uh, who don't have misophonia think, oh, is this just something that people are noticing now? because of, you know, mm -hmm. you're uh, used to being earbuds or whatever. And it's just more of a modern phenomenon where it's it's kind of maybe a uh, a mismatch between what we needed back then and what we what we need now. Yeah, it's true. So for you, what did some of those friendship effects look like? You know, you mentioned the phrase middle school and right off the bat, it's like, oh, middle school, that can be hard enough without feeling like, oh, 
I have these reactions and I get so grumpy or I get so irritated and I don't really know why, but I feel guilty about it. Can you talk to that? Yeah, you know, for so for me in middle school, like in school itself, um, I don't really remember being triggered so much in the school environment. At least I don't remember mm -hmm. any particular incidents. Obviously, like I don't remember much day to day what happened in school, but a lot of people are getting accommodations now in, in schools, but a lot of people were not so triggered in schools. It was more what was happening more at home around that time. Mm, like you mentioned, yeah. Because I think at school, there's enough like background noise and chaos, obviously not during exams. Like I do remember college exams, like being in giant uh, gymnasiums, like I could hear everything. And if somebody had a cough, like I do remember, I don't necessarily think it maybe hopefully not affect so much my results or anything, but um you know, in in a middle school environment, yeah, things there's a lot of background noise and stuff. Uh, and it was more at home when it was like sitting down for dinner or uh, just doing kind of quiet kind of family stuff or sitting or being in a car where it was um, definitely more of an issue. And, and you know, the what happens is it just creates, you know, it's part of what creates that wedge between you and your family members, uh, especially between your parents. And that that's kind of what it's almost a universal uh, yeah. phenomenon that ha that happens. And uh, you tend to, because you don't know what it is, you don't know what the term is, you just assume that, hey, it's part of like the hormones things and you're, you know, you're being, being a teenager, you know, some teenagers rebel in some ways. And for me, maybe it was, uh, I just was annoyed by certain sounds and that was kind of, uh, well, you know, one of many reasons why I just kind of wanted to be my own person or whatever. And Right. Or I was also very much into music. And maybe I was thinking, hey, I'm, I'm just very sensitive to sounds in general because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of music. And if something sounds weird, I'm put off by it. So these are, I think, kind of things that I maybe tell myself and we tell ourselves, but um, not realizing that, uh, you know, it's something much deeper <laughs> and specific to the, uh, and, and about these specific sounds. So, right. Now, is the sensitivity always in a negative way i mean obviously with with the concept of misophonia it would be do you feel like in general there are certain sounds that might be maybe even more soothing to you precisely because they don't have the grading qualities do you appreciate music more are there certain types of sounds that really you notice more because they are more calming i mean what's your relationship to sound in general yeah, I yeah, I don't know if I don't know if there's like certain sounds that I'm hey, I need to turn that sound on because that's a, you know, a positive sound. Although I think there is some research going in that direction to maybe try to identify particularly positive sounds in people like, you know, there's the negative mm -hmm. sounds, but maybe try to cancel out the effects of the negative sounds by maybe layering on certain positive sounds potentially in real time in the future. Wow. So sort of like brown noise or white noise or that yeah. kind of stuff? Maybe brown or maybe a, a, I don't know, a certain sound of a bird or something. Maybe actually a tangible sound that could kind of be layered uh -huh. on top of a, a trigger as it's happening. There, I know that I think there is some research uh, going on in that direction. But for me, uh, yeah, I don't think there's any um, specific sounds uh, other than when, you know, when I'm being triggered uh, or I'm in an environment where I know I'm going to be triggered by a lot of sounds um like i, I you know I'll just throw music that i like on it's not necessarily um mm -hmm. any kind of particular sounds uh, in, in particular but but yeah brown noise is great i mean white so white noise for listeners like white noise is kind of like the catch-all term but it's quite grating it's all frequencies brown noise is basically the highest frequencies um taken out and so yeah in a pinch that definitely works and i actually layer that in the background of my podcast after i've edited everything out i put a little bit of background brown noise just to cover those little bits of you know mouth sounds that, that i may have missed in editing but also it's gonna if people are listening to the podcast and they happen to be on a subway it just kind of gives them a built-in brown noise as well um yeah, I, I wouldn't say there's any particular types of sounds that are maybe more soothing, but just, you know, the music I like to listen to and kind of brown noise in general. Um, there's amazing stuff on YouTube yes. for background noise. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love how you're creating a podcast. You're creating really a space to be welcoming to people with misophonia that is safe for them. And you're going through that with such kindness and care. I'm sure your listeners appreciate that more than anything, that your show is going to be a balm 
rather than being further agitating. Yeah, brown noise and, and all of the questions about frequencies and the emotional effects that they can have on us. It's so fascinating. I know there's recent research just about ADHD and brown noise and how mm. brown noise might be helpful to um, toward people that have ADHD in terms of concentration. I think we have so much to learn about all of these things. And I know you're not a researcher, but how common is this? Do we have a sense of how common it is versus, you know, maybe we are only scratching the, the surface because a lot of people really don't know that this is a thing? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I've heard, I've heard numbers anywhere from like two to 20%. And I feel like the 20% is probably 20% of people are at least somewhat sensitive to sound to, to sounds, but it, it could very much be, um, being sensitive to certain sounds in very isolated situations, but not not in general. I'm not sure what the number would be for the basically for the people who come on at my podcast. I don't know what the the upper limit there is for the people who are very much like I need to run as far away as I can immediately, or I need to like smother that person with a pillow right now. Kind of you know, that's that's like a um, uh, I I don't know what the what those numbers uh, are actually. Um, I should maybe yeah. think about that more carefully, but. Uh, well, I wonder, it sounds like maybe it's a spectrum too, right? Yeah. Like most things in life that they're going to be people for whom this is so severe and it's impairing right. in their daily life and it's so distressing. And then there's going to be other people a little bit less than that. And there's going to be other people a little bit less than that. And then you're going to get at some point to people who are more typical, who, yeah, even a typical person you know, if their uncle is chewing with his mouth filled next to them at Thanksgiving, they might be slightly annoyed, but it's nowhere near the same right. reaction. Do you feel like maybe misophonia is a more qualitative type of thing where, you know, if you've got it, there's something fundamentally different happening in your brain? Or do you feel like more it's sort of quantitative as in it's like just this more heightened extreme reaction that maybe everybody has a tiny bit of, but you just have this reaction in really huge ways. Yeah, that's a good question. I I don't think it's something you are, well, first of all, I don't think it's something that you're just born with misophonic. And um, I feel like if anything, is there's a little bit, some, something a bit epigenetic where maybe you're more predisposed to then uh, using, maybe more predisposed to using while you're growing up to have used sounds as a warning to something. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think it's just like uh, everyone's sensitive. Everyone has misophonia to some level and then some have it more than the other without any other um, inciting factor. I feel like it smells like, uh, at least to me, that um, something is causing it growing up or sometime, somewhere in your past. And it's that part of your genotype to phenotype uh, whatever you want to call it is activated or turned on. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I don't think it's just a spectrum that everyone's on and then we just happen to right. have more of randomly. Um, yeah. And, but I also don't think it's just, uh, some brain disorder. Like I, I don't think it's like some wiring that you were born with without any other, um, other factor. So there's, there's something you're probably more predisposed to maybe part of your part of growing up because, because I think, um, I think I'm not a scientist, but I think part of epigenetics is like like you were saying earlier, um, your apparent um, it, it could be passed on through generations by um, I don't know how I don't know how it affects the DNA, but it uh, it gets passed on and then it could get triggered later. It get, could get turned on later by if the if the conditions are right. And I feel like it's more it's more that where it's a little bit messier as to what is causing it, um, but it's not yeah. it's not totally quantitative. Right. And we see that in so much research about other mm -hmm. disorders, too. You know, my students hear me talk talk about epigenetics all the time and that we're really seeing fascinating things. And essentially what happens is new layers of protein are added to the genes. And so traumatic experiences or, you know, your ancestors living through a famine or something can actually cause those changes in the genes that are passed down. And then what eventually happens is in the womb, the womb environment can also determine, you know, what genes are going to be turned on and off. So identical twins might be as alike as two people could genetically be. But if one of them, you know, had a slightly different position and got more nutrients in this way or was exposed a little bit more to hormones in this way, you could have a situation where even at birth, certain genes in the one twin have been turned 
off in such a way where they haven't been in, in the other. And, and there's so much to learn. And obviously, you know, I am not a geneticist. Hey, it would be great to have one on at some point. Um, but I think that's so fascinating because really there is no nature versus nurture, right? I mean, virtually anything is kind of that combination right. of that genetic predisposition. And then depending on the environmental influences, it can be turned on because we really can't have genes expressed without an environment. And we really can't have the environment acting on anything except what's already in your genes. So it's this constant cycle. And it's fascinating. And hopefully it can also provide some hope that, you know, nothing is black or white in this, that, you know, maybe, for instance, if some environmental changes can be made, that can help mitigate things or that can maybe prevent, like if a parent knows that they have misophonia, maybe, you know, certain things that they can do to make their home environment more calm for their children or make sure that their children's anxiety is kept in check and that they feel more safe. Maybe that can help prevent a little bit the idea that's of something. Yeah. And that's something com that comes up in the conventions is a lot is like, how do we, how do we tell our children about this? Or do we tell our children about this? Yes. And, um, and honestly, th and this is nothing more than just a bunch of us hanging around a, a conference table, you know, in the middle of a convention, but we, um, we usually come to the conclusion that we, you know, we don't necessarily need to like completely hide it, but we don't necessarily need to shine a spotlight on the misophonia. Right. And so but it doesn't have to define you. Yeah. And we don't have to say, Hey, everyone, I have misophonia. So everybody stop, you know, I need, I need this to happen. I need that to happen as much as we would like to, to maybe say that, but I'd, we try to, you know, I'll explain maybe what it is if it's asked, but I don't necessarily have to like make it, like you said, yeah, part of my identity that then my child, I don't want my child to then be worried about triggering me for sounds. And something that I've noticed since doing the podcast, honestly, is like, I will try extra hard now not to be triggered if my child is around and I'm being triggered. Now, luckily, I've found and most of us, you know, most folks have found that our own children don't really trigger us so much, especially we normal parents <laughs> right. are triggered, are triggered by our kids noises. Right. <laughs> That's maybe that's interesting irony there, but 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 that just got me thinking to the whole maybe it's because my my brain has told me okay your child is not the threat you need to be take you need to be protecting your child not protecting yourself yeah. from the child, and so maybe yeah. that's part of it. Oh, that's so fascinating, and just the way that you're able to see these themes because mm -hmm. you're meeting because you're having conferences because you're having people on your shows, and it's anecdotal evidence sure, but it's meaningful patterns of of data in its own right. You see these themes emerge. And that's fascinating stuff. And, you know, I mean, I know I was kind of joking about it, that parents without misophonia are often like, oh, my goodness, my house is so loud. And if my kid plays that toy one more time, I'm going to scream. So I think it's particularly striking that parents with misophonia aren't particularly triggered by their kids because it seems like there'd be such ample time. I mean, kids not knowing how to chew with their mouth closed, right. kids slurping, you know, milkshakes in the back seat or whatever. Yeah, no, that's such a when you say the the whole yeah that toy repeating over and over. Like I I'll definitely notice that too. But I'll I've I particularly you know I'll be like I'm not going to cause a scene. I don't want to be like you know yeah. 20 years from now and my child has misophonia and they could trace it back to when their dad was just kind of freaking out at every sound. Um, so maybe that's one little positive thing you know that if if it can kind of like calm you down. But yeah, um, yeah. can you say more about that about? maybe ways that you do attempt to be less triggered? Are there things that are helpful, things that are not so helpful, you know, mm. for you to say, hey, I really want to make an effort here to not be as triggered in the situation. Obviously, you can't probably eradicate it completely, but are there tools that you use personally that are helpful yeah. for you? Yeah, we can get into, yeah, some of the, the coping methods. I mean, I think uh, just working on the, the baseline of, uh, and I don't do this particularly well, but just keeping the baseline of like, sleeping well if you wake up with completely sleep deprived you are basically you know starting to set up yourself for failure for a lot of different things but um mm -hmm. but then uh you know misophonia is definitely one where you could um definitely be triggered more just general stress level if you're not having the greatest day you're you're it seems like misophonia is 2x 3x worse you're more likely to get triggered. You're, 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 or it's not just being triggered. The timeline of a of a misophonic trigger is, uh, is the trigger, but then it's also the recovery time after. Mm. It's like how quickly can you get back to thinking about normal things? Where because anyone who's got misophonia will tell you, 
one little <laughs> one little sound and you could potentially be thinking about that for hours uh, afterwards um and it could completely throw off your day and your week and so um basic things like yeah you know sleep and stress level but having okay so having um you know i've got my airpod pros that are noise canceling having something within reach around without necessarily having to grab them and put them on is helpful because it just it gives your it tells your nervous system that you have uh, an escape hatch. You have you have something that could help you. Um, and then uh, obviously, if you need to put them in, you can you can put them in. But it's something that uh, I was just you know texting with somebody earlier. It's something that um, some people worry about. You don't want to be too dependent on constantly wearing noise canceling headphones because if you then go out into the world, you can become you know maybe extra sensitive to certain sounds because you're not right. you're not you're not you're not used to them um but yeah noise counseling headphones are are helpful um in a pinch like well okay let, let's talk about like more practical things other than sticking your fingers in your in your ears and everything let's say like in a family environment i don't necessarily have to sit down to eat all the time like i know p- people who um you sit down to eat but maybe you finish a little bit earlier and help with the dishes or something or or you kind of like float around the room where you're kind of a, a, around part of the conversation but you're not necessarily like sitting there in a quiet room you don't have to be in a quiet room you could be listening you could have a, you know keep eating your dining you could have alexa going on playing um playing some music in the background or having some tv but these are some coping mechanisms is to if you have something in the background that can maybe mask some of the little sounds uh that you know that that is helpful uh, humor by the way, is, is a, is a great, mm. if you could talk to somebody, if you could talk to your family members and let them know that you have this, if anyone's going to be helpful, you know, hopefully it would be your family members. They don't have to necessarily get everything right. But we find that if you get the sense that people are at least trying, that can really tell your body that you're in a safe space. Another thing I do is if I'm going to a situation and I don't necessarily have the tools, if I just tell my brain in advance, hey, you're going to sit down for a meal for about whatever, half an hour or something, time box it. Like it's it's going to be over in a little bit. You're okay. No one's going to jump on you, attack you. You're in a safe environment. If you If you kind of like tell yourself that in advance, that can help. And then I'll say one other thing, maybe going back the idea of that, that, inner child that was scared a long time ago if you tell yourself thank you for warning me of these dangers i love you a number of people come on and and told me that 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 is part of their therapy their coping strategy and i find that helps a lot too to kind of tell your inner inner child that maybe is still wounded Uh obviously you still probably have maybe that speaks to maybe more work that you need to do on, on yourself but if in the moment i find that that actually helps as well is to kind of like reassure that mr hyde that is kind of that grown-up version of that child who was scared a long time ago now this is getting into maybe deeper coping methods that uh, yeah. maybe you didn't want to no. maybe you wanted more practical ones but i find that 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 has kind of helped as well and that's come yeah. up in conversations recently so. Well, I love that because it does speak really to the power of the emotional aspect of this, which is I am inherently unsafe in these moments. I'm inherently scared and vulnerable and, and angry that I'm unsafe. And I think the self-compassion seems so crucial because instead of turning against yourself, like, oh my goodness, I hate this about myself. I wish I didn't have to go through this. You're saying, look, there's a part of this that served the purpose. There's a part of this that came right. from maybe some tough environments in the past. It's trying. It's <laughs> it's trying to help me. It's trying to warn me. It's trying to do the right thing. Just like that fight or flight syndrome when I'm trying to give a speech, you know, I I hate the fact that I have butterflies in my stomach or that now I've got armpit stains from my sweat, but there's some part of me that was trying to be helpful to my, mm-hmm. you know, my evolutionary preparedness or whatever. And I, I love the self-compassion. We see that go so far for so many different psychological challenges. The right. notion that if you can calm and pause and thank whatever's happening, even if you don't want it to be happening, but you can appreciate the fact that it's there maybe for a reason. Yeah, it does not point to the idea that it's not, that it's, uh, yeah, it was meant to help you at some point. Something inside you was meant to help you at some point. Yes. And so if you can acknowledge that, in the moment, but then also obviously maybe try to try to work on that later in some way. There are obviously many ways to kind of um, modalities to kind of help overcome that. But um, there's the idea of uh, 
I've, I've seen therapies where there's the idea of like thinking back to old memories and trying to rewrite, update old memories and rethink like what was, uh, what, what was maybe the motivation of the sound? Uh, maybe, um, maybe your dad who was making sounds in the car was actually just tired or extra tired or something or extra grumpy based yeah. on something that happened at work. And if you can tell your, if you can put yourself back into that child sitting in the back seat back then and kind of rewrite that scene in your head, and then maybe it's very related to I think what I was just talking about, but it's very much um, can kind of hopefully try to ease that you know, inner inner child that's still warning you to this day. Yeah, compassion towards that other person too to help diffuse mm -hmm. the the rage. Really, I think it's fascinating. Diffusing a situation that happened thirty, forty years ago is, is fascinating yeah. to kind of help yourself. Yeah. Now. Well, um, it reminds me of trauma work too yeah right I mean, part of trauma work is really sort of going back to that original situation that was so tragic or so horrifying but helping to diffuse it now because now you are safe and you know maybe for decades your body heard firecrackers and thought i'm back in a war zone right but it's you know so we have to kind of rewire and rewrite and say i am safe now and I'm no longer back in that traumatic situation, even though it sounds like it by the sounds of those fireworks and it sounds very similar in that way. Yep. I, there's so much here that I think really is deeper stuff. And I think that's the crucial stuff because I can imagine so much judgment that people have, or especially before they know that this is a thing. You know, what is wrong with me? I want to be a kind person. But my partner's driving me crazy when they just do something so innocent, like snack on corn chips or whatever it might be. Right. So confusing and and so you know being lost. And I think you're creating such a good thing for people to be able to come and tell their stories and come together. I know some of my listeners, and and this is probably a preposterous question, but I have to ask it. You know, what is what is a misophonia conference like? You know, I mean, are, is everybody sort of able, they're, they're able to understand triggers. So like, maybe we're not going to eat together. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be facetious, but I do kind of wonder, you know, since everybody has these particular characteristics, how are those taken care of in a typical convention type of environment? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so when we're, yeah, when we're all in the same room, it, it's very much like it's, if, when you're around your your brethren, your it's almost like family. Where I feel like we know that we're all at least trying, and mm -hmm. um, or we're sensitive to it. Or if somebody makes a sound that we know that we can we can just kind of look in their direction, they'll get it. That helps to kind of diffuse things. You're basically around yes. other wounded people, so it there that uh, aspect of it helps a little bit. Now there are specific things the conference when it's been in person actually does like at snack or breakfast uh it's all like things like uh, soft foods like hard-boiled eggs there's no like <laughs> crunchy things and yeah, so um so that they kind of take those steps like soft muffins and whatnot obviously you're not gonna sit stand next to somebody who's maybe chewing those things but but at least there isn't like loud crunches uh for folks who are um triggered by those uh things other than that i mean they uh they always pick a location, uh, I think it was like Embassy Suites, where there are like two doors, like there's a front door and then there's the door to the bedroom. So like when you're sleeping, you're always like two doors away from, you know, the hallways and whatnot. So those um. Embassy Suites tend to be a little, and it's not an ad for Embassy Suites, but they tend to be a little bit uh, quieter. <laughs> um, and, and generally, I, you know, I, a lot of us honestly, like I'll go and watch some lectures, but, uh, or uh, sessions, but it tends to be the kind of like the, the kind of the smaller group conversations outside that tend to be the most valuable and there you can kind of find your own spot and whatnot and and you're you feel you know you're around people who who get you and you get them even though you may have just met and so it's it's fine it's it's actually great it's it's uh, i highly recommend these these conferences obviously the last few years it's been virtual which is you know obviously that also has its pros and cons but yeah in in person soft foods um quiet rooms and um the ability to kind of move around, uh, which is yeah. important. So. Yeah. Well, it speaks too to what you were saying before in terms of just knowing that someone is trying and knowing that you have some safety in the sense that the person is aware and it has your best interests in heart, at heart. You know, you talked about that in the context of that being helpful in terms of family members, but it also speaks to just how you said automatically at this conference, you know you're more safe because you know 
that people really do have an understanding and that's validating and it means that it's not as threatening it's not like oh here's this clueless person that's going to come in with a jawbreaker you know right next to my ear it really feels more safe there it's so so powerful right we've either been in situations or yeah we've probably been in situations so we we kind of don't even bring it up anymore because we, we've been blown off we've been eye-rolled we've been um mocked you know because it's it sounds so it sounds so stupid it's just like why mm. are you so how could you be so annoyed at a sound because everyone grows up thinking about you know the, the nails on the chalkboard and there's many things there's the manners aspect of it there's a lot of things that we're told yeah you know sounds are annoying and whatnot but it's rare that um but this is this is a whole other level so a lot of us are um there's that shame or guilt that has kind of like layered on each uh, on on ourselves for so long that yeah we don't we don't even tend to bring it up with people so if we can be around other people who at least understand that's that's a huge deal because we're not used to that we're used to being told that this is absolutely ridiculous and you right there's something wrong with you and not only that but you are you are making other people feel bad because uh, it's your problem and you're, you're, you know, you're blaming it on them when that's the last thing we're trying to do. Yeah. It just looks like it, you know, it just looks like it. So. Right. It's a gift to not have to explain and to right. not be scrutinized about it. Yeah. As we wrap up, is there any particular research going on that seems to give you particular hope? Are there, things in terms of interventions or things that are being assessed in the population? I mean, what is going on? Can we expect that maybe in a future generation, somebody might have an easier time dealing with this because of some of the places that the research has taken us? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of research now going on. And uh, but only really in the last few years, I think, has it really taken off because there have there's now the uh, Misophonia Research Fund, there is nonprofits like soquiet.org are providing grants uh, to students. So there's a lot of there's a lot of research going on what I've been kind of uh, I've been I don't know, I've just been particularly fascinated lately with the, this whole direction that we we're talking about in terms of treating it as uh, barring some um, approaches from in trauma work um just just that whole side of it the epigenetics the potential that it's related to things that happened uh, the wounded child that was wounded uh, growing up and that self-compassion and and rewriting i don't want to say rewriting your past but kind of maybe using brain plasticity to kind of rewrite your responses to triggers now which are now having the the hindsight to to realize that these are not threats anymore, um, right. and so I think this this is the direction you know updating your past to kind of help yourself in the present. I think it's a fascinating thing. It's not like we're going to be popping a pill or anything any anytime soon to get over this. I think it's I think it's very much uh, working on the brain and looking at yourself more holistically it's not just a reaction in the present it's a reaction that is an echo of something in the past so i feel like that that yeah. is um a direction that i think more people should look into as a way to treat this yeah is there anything about more conditioning or exposure types of things does anybody have help with sort of building a trying to desensitize yeah that's a good question yeah exposure therapy is, is um something that's a hot topic i'll just say i mean there are a lot of different approaches and i feel like mm -hmm. i have i've never heard of one that's helped everybody i know that some people say certain types of exposure therapies help or at least conditioning but i haven't really heard of that helping most people and so that's not a direction that I necessarily go to as uh, recommend as, as kind of like something to, to try right away. But lately I've been more interested in, yeah, in self-compassion and trying to repair what may have, whatever chronic trauma or low level small T trauma that, that may have affected you in the past. Now, I do think though that there are, I don't want to say they're necessarily exposure or conditioning kind of therapies, but there are ways to maybe try to reframe your thinking of a sound uh, you know as it's happening like maybe try to think more about the reasoning behind the sound maybe try to think sympathetically to the person making the sound like telling yourself maybe this person is chewing this way because they have some weird problem in their mouth or something now maybe you're creating a story in your head but if if that can maybe get you through a moment then that's you know better than wanting to rip their head off or maybe th there's an idea of if you hear a sound, maybe trying to manipulate it in your head, like maybe try to um, think of, you know, using a remote control or something to kind of like make it go 
uh, I don't know. I don't. I was just talking to a therapist recently about, and and you know, she's thinking about ways. That if you're listening to a sound, trying to. Uh, it's all about kind of like about control. It's about regaining control of the situation. Yes. Is is trying yeah. to in your head, trying to think that maybe you're the one manipulating the sand, or at least you have some power over it, and that can kind of um, it's definitely better than nothing, and it can kind of maybe help you um, not be so angry about the sound if you can feel like you're somehow in control of the sound when you obviously not actually in control of the sound um maybe yeah. making in your head making some jokes about the sound mm-hmm. you know just just trying to as maybe assigning a personality to the sound and just trying to uh, play with it so th- those aren't necessarily exposure therapies they're more about experiments with different strategies in, yeah. in redefining your relationship with that sound Yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, that is so connected to acceptance and commitment therapy in terms of redefining our relationship with negative thoughts. And some of those tools are very similar. The idea of taking our anxious thoughts and instead of running screaming from them, giving them a voice and disempowering the thought and turning them into a silly song or that threatening thought, we give kind of a farcical voice that kind of makes us laugh so that we're defusing from them. We're separating ourselves Mm -hmm. from them. And the other piece you mentioned that really resonated with me was this notion of there is research that says that when we can have compassionate thoughts towards others, it does lower our threat response. So we're driving and somebody cuts us off and we feel threatened in that moment. Oh my goodness. But if instead we can reframe it, I wonder if that person's just gotten terrible news about a loved one and they're trying to get home quickly. It actually makes us feel not just, you know, more ooh, warm and fuzzy, but in a very visceral, physical way, it makes us feel less threatened. And I think that kind of work, we're just starting to scratch the surface and it, it all seems so connected. This has been such a fascinating conversation. And I know, unfortunately, we have yeah, to likewise, it's been interesting to hear your insights as well, uh, you know, especially from someone who's obviously knows a, a lot about uh, many different kinds of psychology. Some, some of the stuff you said, um, yeah, has been definitely learned a lot here. It's been really interesting to to kind of hear my um you know random lay lay person uh, ideas kind of um uh, echoed back in a in a much more uh scientific way <laughs> yes so this- well they're certainly not random and you're anything but a lay person at this point you've done so much to help other people and i'm just i really commend you for that and i know that a lot of my listeners today will be interested in your podcast so can you tell us again where to find it and and what it's called and also the nonprofits that you mentioned yeah it's it's called uh, the misophonia podcast pretty simple you can find it anywhere you get podcasts uh, i also have the site misophoniapodcast.com and you know, you can reach out to me on Misophonia Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, Misophonia Show on Twitter, uh, and email me, hello at misophoniapodcast.com. And yeah, I'm also on the board of uh, a great nonprofit called soquiet.org, uh, headed up by Chris Edwards and um, Zach, Ro- Dr. Zach Rosenthal uh, from Duke University is on the board as well. Uh, and we have a great advisory board as well. And so Quiet does a lot for advocacy getting the word out for misophonia and also providing now grants for research so definitely um look at so quiet if you're um, a student looking to get some grants yeah we're we're just getting started so uh, it's great to just kind of get more people who've been suffering in silence uh at least aware of what's going on and that kind of validation can go a long way oh that's so wonderful well thank you again so much adil for taking the time it's it's really been a pleasure to talk with you and i know a lot of my listeners have gotten a lot out of this thank you andrea this has been great thanks for joining me today once again i'm dr andrea bonnier and this has been baggage check with new episodes every tuesday and friday join us on instagram at baggage check podcast give us your take and opinions on topics and guests And you know you've got that friend who listens to like 17 podcasts? We'd love it if you told them where to find us. Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Daniel Merity, and my studio security, it's Buster the Dog. Until next time, take good care.